John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made them known to you, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, at this time, our kindergartners can make their way to the back of the room for Bible study. I think Miss Becky's got them today, and so four in kindergarten, four in kindergarten, so wonderful. Well, our sermon text this morning is from John chapter 17, and so as we begin our time in the Word this morning, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and asking Him for help. Father, we are so very grateful for your grace and mercy that we have sung about, that we have heard, read from your scripture, from your word, that we have been reminded of as we've come before you in prayer. Lord, we are overjoyed at the great redemption that you have provided us through your son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for sinners like us. And Father, as we are so excited about what you are doing in the planting of Redemption Church, Lord, we do ask for your help. Lord, we are dependent upon you in all things. And Father, as we look towards John 17 now, Father, thinking through the unity of the church, Lord, as we look at this wonderful prayer from the lips of the Son of God himself for us, Lord, that we would be encouraged, and Lord, that you would make us one, as you are one. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So have you ever had somebody pray for you that really made a lasting impression? You know, the body of Christ ought to always be praying for one another. You know, one of the things I, I hope will become a part of this church's culture is just people praying for one another, that when they share something going on in your life, that you stop right then and, and pray with them, and that you know, it's kind of normal to see people praying in the corner here or there, even as we're gathered on Sunday morning and just in the, the rhythm of our lives together that we're people who pray for one another. But, you know, over the course of your life, there are probably a few prayers that people have prayed for you that have really stuck with you. Uh, you know, maybe a, it was a specific situation or circumstance or a particular person who meant a great deal to you, pray for you. You know, I can think of a few situations in my life where there have been specific prayers that have been timely and, and encouraging and, and meaningful. The one that comes to my mind right now is just thinking through my, my ordination as a pastor all the way down in Charleston, South Carolina. I guess almost, 
how many years has it been? Nine, ten years ago now. Um, and I can never forget that. Not only was my, my church there that ordained me, but my dad was able to come in and preach uh, my ordination sermon and, and to pray over me uh, in that ministry. And I just remember that how meaningful that was as my dad, who's a pastor, prayed over me as I began my work as a pastor called by God. So there are certain times and events, and I'm sure you could recall some as well, but I think as we look at John 17, there's a particular prayer here that I think far exceeds them all. Because this passage from John 17, John 17, if you're not unfamiliar with John's gospel, this is Jesus's high priestly prayer. He's getting ready to go to the cross. The cross is before him, and he is praying for himself. He's praying for the, the disciples, and he's praying for you. He's praying for you. And this section in verse 20 and 26 of this high priestly prayer is that section that, that Jesus is praying for Redemption Church. He's praying for you and me. He's praying for all of those who would believe in him through the apostolic witness. And so this is a wonderful, beautiful prayer that Jesus is not only interceding for us now at the right hand of the Father, but 2,000 years ago, Jesus is praying for for us during his earthly ministry. So John 17 records this prayer, and, and verse 20 through 26 is the specific prayer for us, those who would believe in the testimony of the apostles, and look at what he prays. He prays that we might be unified, unified as the Son and the Father are united so that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son. This passage is rich. It's uh, beautiful and sweet doctrines contained in here. And, and again, it's one of those passages you could just keep squeezing for months and months and, and continue to discover wonderful new things about God and about Christ and his love for, the, for us. But I want to draw out one particular truth as we look at John 17 this morning for us and bring it to bear on us as, as this new church. And so in sum, here's what the sermon is going to be about this morning. The statement should be on the screen. Church unity is grounded in God's own existence, and the church should reflect and anticipate the sweetness of God's self-communion to the world. That's a packed little sentence there. <laughs> I'll give you a second to, to read it on the screen, and I'll read it one more time. Church unity is grounded in God's own existence, and the church should reflect and anticipate the sweetness of God's self-communion, communion within himself, to the world. So let's dive into this. There's, there's going to be some weighty things that I want to try to teach you this morning, but I think they are absolutely astonishing and beautiful if we get them and grasp them. And these are what Jesus is talking about in the text. So there's going to be five truths this morning. The first one is this. Church unity originates from God's unity. Church unity originates from God's unity. The basis for the unity of the church is found within God's own triune existence. We just sang, as we started this morning, holy, 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 blessed trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But, you know, the doctrine of the trinity is sadly neglected in the church today, particularly the American church. We just don't really think about it that much. We don't really talk about the Trinity. We might sing it in a song like Holy, Only, Holy, but we don't really talk about what it means or its relevance. We don't really give it a lot of thought or meditation. And I suspect that the neglect of the doctrine of the Trinity is, is due in part to its complexity. And it's complex. It's difficult to understand. 
But it's not just the complexity that I think we tend to ignore. It's just we, we think it's irrelevant. It really didn't have anything to do. It's nothing we can really put into practice with it with. You know, for most people, God's triune existence is more of a problem to be solved with people who have way too much time on their hands. Almost like a, a spiritual Rubik's Cube that you just kind of fiddle around with every now and then. And, and it's kind of a, a waste of time to really think about it too much. But however, the Trinity is much more like a painting than a puzzle. You know, when you go look at a, a piece of art in a museum, you know, you're captivated by its beauty, by its intricacy. You can stand and gaze at it and be, as you behold the beauty of the painting, that's, that's more like what the Trinity is like. It's not a Rubik's Cube, it's, it's something beautiful to behold. The Trinity isn't some intellectual problem for seminary professors to try to figure out, but rather, the Trinity is the very power that underpins the vitality of authentic Christian spirituality, meaning it's got a great deal to do with your Christian life. It's not irrelevant. It's not something that we just relegate to some corner and forget about. Rather, it is incredibly relevant. Trinitarian spirituality unites both the head and the heart, the mind and the affections, both doctrine and Christian practice. So as Jesus prays for us, look at what he prays. He prays that we might be unified. That's kind of the, the driving theme of his prayer, isn't it? That we would be unified reflecting God's own triune existence. So, so what is the doctrine of the Trinity? If you're unfamiliar with it, if you haven't learned much about it, again, you're in good company. Most people really don't know much about the Trinity. But, but there's really three basic truths that, that accompany the doctrine of God's triune existence. The first is that God is one, that there's one God. Second, that God exists in three persons. And third, that each person is not a third of God, but holy or fully God. Those three truths make up the, the basics of the Trinity. All three are affirmed and taught in Scripture. So as we look at God's triune existence revealed to us in Christ and in the New Testament witness in particular, we see that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist have always existed in this sweet harmony of communion before the foundations of the world. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21 of our passage. He says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So within the, the Godhead is this overflowing community of love. As each person receives love from the other and gives love to the other. God exists in community within himself. So the Trinity means that God is self-sufficient. That God isn't contingent on you and me in order to be loving. That's a big problem with Islam, isn't it? You know, Muslims will tell you that God is love. That that's an attribute of Allah. But if Allah is completely single, and he's not triune, then Allah is dependent upon his world in order to be loving. And if God is dependent upon anything, then he's not really God, is he? So the God of the Bible, the triune God, 
doesn't have that problem. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need this world. He doesn't need you and me. He has all that he needs within himself. He is an overflowing community of love. And within this frenzy of divine love, the glory of God then overflows in his creating and redemptive work. God creates the world. And he sets his human creatures as vice regents over that world so that we might love him. And so that as his glory goes forth, it would return to him in worship and praise. God creates the world. His glory emanates, meaning it kind of shines off of him into the world. And as it shines forth into the world, as it emanates, it re-emanates, it returns back to him in glory and worship. This is what God is doing. This is his existence. In other words, as we think about the church The church is united to Christ by faith. But as we're united to Christ by faith, we become participants in this divine dance of love. God is bringing us in to this communion he has within himself, that we are brought in Christ into the the harmony of God's glory to enjoy him, to delight in him, to love him as he loves us. This is what means at at verse 24 of the text. Look at verse 24. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is a wonderful (laughs) verse That kind of sums up what God is doing in all the scriptures. The whole plan of redemption is so that we might see the glory of Christ and be with him and share in the love of Christ that the Father has always had for the Son for all of eternity. These are deep truths. And there is a lot that I could say about these as we talk about its relevance for the Christian life. But the one I want to draw out for us today is that as we look at this Trinitarian vision and its implications for the church, this is what we see. The unity of the church is not something we make happen, but it's something God has already made happen. The unity of the church isn't contingent upon our ability to all agree, but we are united on the basis of our acceptance of the gospel message and of the redemptive work of Christ upon the cross. So we must expand our view, right? That as we are united to Christ by faith, we are not only united as individual people, meaning that that the Christian faith is is certainly about you and God and your relationship with him, but it's certainly not all that it is. The Christian faith is much bigger, much broader. It's more than just you, that God is uniting his church to himself, that God is saving a people for his own possession, and we are united together as one in Christ. So though we aren't one organizationally, right, as we think through all the Christians in the world. We're not all in the same church. We're not even in all the same denominations. But yet, and that's not what Jesus is speaking about in the prayer, by the way. What Jesus is talking about is that in him we are spiritually one. As we remember from that apostolic creed, right, the Apostles' Creed, the holy universal church. That again, this universal church is invisible, meaning you can't point to an organization, institution, and say that's it. But at the same time, all who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been given the Spirit of God. We are one 
in him. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, in Christ we are one. We are one. So put as simply as possible for us, as we think about the unity of the church, unity is not something we manufacture. It is something God has done in Christ. That if you are in Christ, Jesus, we are united. We are united. The Father has sent his Son into the world to unite the church under the leadership, the headship of his Son, so that we might share in the sweet communion of triune love, overflowing love of God, that we are participants in that. So Christ has reconciled us and united us to himself so that we might see his glory. So if church, church unity then originates from God's own unity, then you might ask yourself the question, well, then why is there so much division in the church? <laughs> why is that the case? And one of the main reasons for that division leads us into the second truth we see from John 17 is that church unity is founded upon God's word. Church unity is founded upon God's word. We talked a lot about this last week, but, but we see it again come up here in John 17. Look at verse 20 of the text, right? Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That little phrase is important, through their word. There are a lot of pronouns in this verse, so let's kind of untangle it a little bit. What is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus is saying, I, Jesus, do not only ask for the apostles, I'm not only praying for the apostles here, but I'm praying for all of those who would believe in their message, meaning us, right? He's praying for us, those who would believe through the apostles' word. So meaning that the church is united based off of our acceptance by faith in the apostolic gospel. The apostolic gospel. Our unity is not based on some sort of nice sentimental desire to want to all get along. Like we're some sort of hippie commune, right? All listening to Jimi Hendrix and wearing tie-dye t-shirts and uh, throwing up peace signs when we walk by. Right? That's not the type of unity we're talking about here, right? But rather, the unity of the church, Jesus says, is based upon a shared set of convictions of what we believe. That's, that's the grounding of our unity. That some who desire to see more unity across denominations and churches, what they tend to do is to actually water down the gospel so much so that it's not even definable anymore. You don't even have the gospel. You've got something else, right? Because lots of congregations might call themselves a church, but they don't hold to the apostolic gospel revealed in the scriptures. They hold to some sort of other gospel. Sure, liberal Protestantism, they might use language like we use. They might talk about Jesus. They might talk about his death. They might talk about his resurrection. But as they talk about those words, they mean something completely different than the apostles did when they spoke about those words. Right? They reject the, the substitutionary atonement of Christ and, and promote some sort of social gospel about society. And, and, and again, they end up failing to proclaim and being bound by the true gospel once for all delivered to the saints. You see, these challenges and these consistent apostolic command to establish the church on sound doctrine, it requires the local church then to make their beliefs explicit. 
What do we believe about what God's word says? That the unity of the church is established upon those who have received the message, the word of God. And so as we discussed last week, right, from Ephesians chapter 2, the church is built upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the unity of the church is grounded upon a shared set of beliefs and convictions. That we are people who have been saved and redeemed by God's grace through Jesus Christ. Let me share what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this, because, of course, he's Charles Spurgeon. He can say things in a masterful way, right? Here's what he said. He said, there's a chorus of ecumenical voices. This is kind of the idea of people wanting all the denominations to kind of become one and all get along type of thing, that kind of hippie idea a little bit. But the desire for unity across multiple churches, he says, a chorus of ecumenical voices keep harpening the unity tune But what they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organizations regardless. Unite, unite. Such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17 of John 17, right? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. And I think Charles Spurgeon is is exactly right there. That what marks the local church as different from any other social group is what we believe. The truth. Whether you are a member of the Moose Lodge or your local YMCA, the boundaries of those organizations, they're not doctrinal, right? Not in any sense. But if you are a member of the country club, then then what's the arrangement there? Well, you pay your fees for the privileges of jumping in the pool and swinging the clubs on the golf course, right? That's that's you pay your dues that you got that privilege. So the unity isn't over convictions, but the unity of the church is grounded in a shared confession of Christ as Lord. That the church is made up of those who have believed and confessed Christ through the apostolic word. So so again, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that, that this morning you might respond to him in repentance and faith, believing in this apostolic word that, that we believe in here at Redemption Church because it's our deepest conviction that every human being is a sinner and that Jesus came into this world as our Savior and Redeemer, paying the penalty for our sin upon the cross and that through his resurrection we have victory and eternal life through him. And this is what God has done. This is what we believe God has done for us. And this is what we believe God can do for you if you are willing to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus this morning. This is our confession. This is the gospel. This is the conviction that binds us all together. And we extend it to you as well that you might believe. This glorious good news is the gospel, the good deposit that has been entrusted to us So this great deposit of the gospel has been passed down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. You know, Paul talks about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This, This good deposit Paul's talking about there, it's not a bank account, right? It's not like the church's property, in fact, the early church probably didn't have any property, so we're in good company, right? <laughs> so they didn't, have, they didn't have property. They didn't have buildings. 
So what's this good deposit here, right? It's not, it's not material possessions in any sense, but the good deposit is doctrine. Doctrine, the gospel, the faithful deposit of the apostolic gospel that has been passed down from one generation to the next. And as we look towards the planting of Redemption Church, we are in the process right now, working on this on Sunday nights, of carefully expounding upon the summary of doctrine that has been handed down to us. We're not inventing it, right? We're not making it up. It's been given to us by generations past. And this deposit then is what we must guard and teach if we hope to be unified as a church. And this deposit is the foundation of our unity. It is what makes us one. It's upon which the fellowship of the church is built. So the church then must clearly and carefully and concisely as possible articulate the convictions that are the foundation of their unity found in the word of God. And this is the confession of faith. The confession of faith, which is simply a statement that summarizes what a local church believes about what God's word says. Its aim is to be explicit in the teaching of the church. And it's a foundational document that is essential for the unity of the church. So we're excited that tonight, and so we pray many of you will come back, and again, Sunday evenings is open to everyone, but it's really for those that, that are, are, are looking towards becoming some of the founding members of Redemption Church, and we're going through a lot of the specifics of these founding documents, but we are excited that tonight we will pass out a confession of faith for Redemption Church, and we'll begin tonight teaching through it over the next few weeks. And for the sake of the unity of Redemption Church that we hope to plant in August officially, that we want to make it clear what our church will hold to teach and belief. Because a church that is not united on doctrine will be a divided church. It just will. No matter how hard you try, church unity will be elusive, ever slipping through our grasp. It must be grounded in what the Word of God says. And as we lay the foundation of Redemption Church, we want to be clear super clear about what the clear doctrinal convictions of the church will be and that every member of the church understands what those doctrinal convictions are. And so though the church must take its doctrine incredibly seriously, and we're doing that right now, as we look at Jesus' prayer for us, he's, he's not praying that we all become theology nerds, so to speak. But rather, as we're taking doctrine seriously, as we're accepting this apostolic word by faith, this sort of unity and doctrine begins to express itself in a sweet love towards one another. And this leads to the third truth I want to draw out for us this morning, is that church unity is expressed in love. It's expressed in love, reflecting the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? So all throughout John's gospel, John tells us, about the sweet love between the Father and the Son. I'll just give you a few examples, right? John 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you Abide in my love, Jesus says. And of course, we've got John 17, verse 24 in our text today, right? Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you, Father, loved me before the Son, before the foundation of the world. 
So the, the love of, of God is extended to us through the Son. The Son is the mediator through which we receive the love of God. As we receive the love of God in Christ, that love then begins to change us, right? It transforms us as we begin to express that holy love that sanctified us and justified us and redeemed us as we begin to express that love back to God in worship and as we express that divine love to one another in the local church. You see, love is incredibly important. It's so sweet. This is Jesus' command, right? John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I, Jesus, have loved you. So love is the distinguishing mark of those who have been born of God. Unity is expressed in love for one another, for the, for the saints. I mean, John talks about this a lot in 1 John. And we, again, we could spend a lot of time there. But John writes in that book, in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. It's the distinguishing mark, right, of those who have been truly born again. John, 1 John 5, 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Meaning that if, that if you confess Christ as Lord, if you've confessed that you've received the love of God, his redeeming grace in your life, and you're hating your brothers and sisters in your local church, then John says that there are good grounds to doubt that you even know God. Because if you loved God, you would not be hating your brothers and sisters. Love for one another is the explosive result of those who have received the love of God. So much so, right? That, that if you say you love God but hate your brother, the scripture calls you a liar. It's not me, that's John calling you a liar if you act that way. So the connection between the root of our confession, right, what we believe, the connection with that root, that deep root in the soil, with the fruit of love, those two things go hand in hand, right? That if there is no love in our lives, that fruit, then the scriptures say there's good grounds to question the root, right? Whether you've ever been born again to begin with. This is what the scriptures tell us. Meaning that if we are truly united in our confession of faith, if we really believe the gospel, and if we've been transformed by the gospel, then those who have received the grace of God, then love will mark the church of Christ. It, it's going to be evident. A church divided is an unloving church, an unloving church. And why is love absent in so many churches? Well, most likely, the reason for the hatred results from an unconverted heart, as there are people in the church who do not belong to Christ and who have not responded in faith to the gospel. And that ought to break our hearts and cause us to weep for their spiritual confusion and deception that Satan has placed over them. But as we look towards planting Redemption Church, we must express our unity, right? We can't just say we're united, right? We express that unity in Christ as we take the convictions that we hold and as we love one another as Christ has loved us. And love for one another is not always easy. In fact, it's usually never easy, right? Love for one another is messy. That true love for one another is sacrificial. It's at times inconvenient for you. True love for one another in the local church is often intrusive. 
giving permission for other brothers and sisters in the church to even interrupt your lives, causing you to stop what you're doing so that you can minister to them and care for them. True love for one another means we prioritize one another in our time. It means that we give up our wants and preferences for the good of one another. It means that we show patience with one another when we sin against one another, and that means that we extend forgiveness to them. It means that we are patient with one another and our shortcomings and immaturities. And in this diverse room, we all have different strengths, ways that we're being very faithful to Christ, and we all have ways where we're not being so faithful to Christ. And nothing will bring out those strengths and weaknesses more like God's people being together. And that's a wonderful thing for us, right? That, but it involves, requires patience, caring for one another, helping each other grow. It means bearing with one another's weaknesses, right? So the church is made up of sinners, redeemed sinners, but sinners nonetheless. And so at times we are going to speak harshly to one another and sin. We are going to let one another down. However, when that happens, the church must be quick to give grace, quick to display love, quick to extend forgiveness, because the unity of the church is not expressed only in a right confession. That's important. But that confession is expressed in love towards one another. And we must model and display that love. Again, John says this in 1 John 3.18, little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. May we prove our confession of faith genuine, church, by truly loving one another as Christ has loved us. And Jesus prays for us for that, right? Look at verse 26 of John 17. He says, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This means that, that the love of the Father for the Son is now directed towards us. And that's an astonishing truth in and of itself, right? That the, the same delight and joy and affection that the Father has with his blameless Son, he now has for you because you are in Christ. That's an astonishing truth. But at the same time, there's another dynamic to that, right? That not only do we receive the love of God, but that love of God dwells within us. It shapes us. It transforms us. And that love that we've received is molding us, and it's evident in the way we worship God and evident in the fellowship of the saints in the local church. As John 13, verse 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But even though we aspire to love one another, as Jesus commands us, in the same way that Christ has first loved us, we should aspire to that. But guess what? We're going to fall short. <laughs> and this leads us to the fourth truth this morning, is that church unity is perfected and expanded, or it expands. It's perfected and expands. The unity of the church is, is a lot like our own individual journeys of sanctification, isn't it? That it grows as the body matures in Christ as Jesus prays for unity, look at what he says in verse 23. He prays that they may become perfectly one. Perfectly one. This prayer implies, right, that the unity of the church is not yet perfect, but it's progressing. The unity is growing over time as the Lord works in and through the church. So remember, the Lord has already made the church unified. 
that we are all united together because we have all been united in Christ. That unity exists, but in our life together, as we seek to be what Christ has already declared us to be, that's what church unity is. God has already made us one, and we live our Christian lives becoming what God has already called you and I to be, which is one. Since in Christ we are one, we pursue that perfect unity that we already have. That he's already given us. And as we submit ourselves to the word of Christ, and as day by day we grow in him by his spirit, we will find that the Lord will begin to unite our hearts more and more. The sweetness of that unity will continue to grow. As we mature in Christ, we will find that the unity of the church becomes vivid and palpable. It's a bit like marriage, isn't it? Marriage is the union between one man and one woman for one lifetime, in case there was any doubt about that, right? Yeah, can't be too unsure nowadays. But the Bible says that man and woman are united. They become one flesh is the language of Genesis, isn't it? However, and again, you married people can testify and say amen here, right? That when you first get married, you may be googly-eyed in love, but those first years of marriage, you realize just how not one you really are, <laughs> right? Amen. All right, I heard a few amens. Testify, right? So you are one, right? The scriptures to say that you're, you are one flesh now. You're married. You said, I do. You are in covenant with one another. But yet those first few years, those honeymoon years are sweet, but they are filled with difficulty and adjustments of learning how to live with a man or a woman, and trying to figure out all the complexities of that, right? And the difficulties of communication. But, but however, as you both grow and mature in your marriage, if you keep Christ at the center, and you're quick to forgive, quick to love, right? Quick to show grace. You will find that the sweetness of that union begins to grow over the years. Like a fine wine, the marriage will grow more robust and richer and sweeter and as the years go by, your unity, which existed on that day you said, I do, becomes more vivid and palpable. You can see it. You can taste it. You can hold it. And so it is with the church. That if we all are committed to keeping our eyes on Christ and keeping ourselves committed to growing together in the word of God, then the sweetness of the unity in which we have in Christ will become increasingly evident amongst us. And we pray that the Lord will do that, that our unity will begin to grow and increase, that our love for one another will begin to increase and will begin to shine out like a city set upon a hill. But over the years, over the decades, may the light of Redemption Church burn brighter and brighter and brighter as with the unity that we have in Christ becomes more and more evident. This is what God is doing. So as the church grows in unity, though, it is also expanding as well. It's expanding. It's growing in size and in number. There are more people coming in to be united with. That's the goal. That's what Jesus is praying here for us, right? That one of the reasons Jesus prays for the unity of the church is so that the world might believe. Look at verse 20 and 21 again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Why? That they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Here's the purpose statement. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's why Jesus is praying for our unity. So that the world might believe. You can see that the unity of the church has an evangelistic aim. 
an evangelistic aim, a divided and bickering church will be unable to reach people for King Jesus. It just can't do it. The text gives us a powerful reason for why the unity of the church is so important for a mission because, right, a divided church does not accurately reflect the unity and love between the Father and the Son. The church is to reflect that, right? To model it for the world. In fact, a divided church actually obscures who God is. That if the church is to be a mirror, reflecting the sweetness and beauty of God's love and unity, then a divided church is a funhouse mirror, making monstrous distortions to the very identity and character of God. A bickering church gives further evidence to the lost, those who have hardened their hearts in unbelief against the gospel. That when the lost world looks into a church and observes strife and politicking and gossip, then the church's testimony begins to tarnish the very character and reputation of God before the watching world. These are no light matters. We who are called to be ambassadors of Christ, we misrepresent him if we fail to preserve the unity of the church. And you've heard this from people, right? They will say, well, you know, I, I don't want Christianity. I don't believe in that mess because, you know, there are a bunch of mean-spirited, hate-filled people who attack one another. And if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with the church or its God. That's the way people talk, isn't it? And woe to the unfaithful churches who will have to give an account to Jesus for their misrepresentation of God in their community. It will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for them. Church unity is serious business because God's fame and glory is at stake. However, Jesus prays for the unity of the church so that the world might believe that the Father has sent the Son, that through the unity of the church, the kingdom of God is advancing as the church begins to accurately and vividly and, and, and beautifully begin to reflect the love of God for the world. So as the unity of the church begins to grow, it begins to expand as well as more people from every tribe and tongue and nation begin to respond in faith to Christ the King. And so at Redemption Church, we're trying to be very intentional in these opening weeks, right, to establishing the unity of the church as we're, we're looking towards covenanting together in August. However, our hope is not just to be united for united's sake. It's that we might be united and accurately reflect the love of God to the world and that the unity of the church will continue to expand as the Lord begins to bring more people into the fold. That as we begin our public ministry to the community in the fall, we pray that the Lord would use us to faithfully and accurately testify to Christ before the city of Wilson. And our hope is that the Lord would save many and that Redemption Church, the membership of Redemption Church, would expand as more people join with us and testifying to the gospel not just in word, but in deed, and not just before Wilson, but before all the world. That's our goal. That's our hope. That as the church grows and expands in unity, that leads us to the fifth and final point I want to bring out to you from this passage, is that church unity anticipates the vision of God. It anticipates the vision of God. In verse 26, we see that Jesus had made known to us the Father. 
That we know who the Father is because Jesus has made it known. And that he will continue to bring us into deeper knowledge of who the Father is. So knowledge here, right, is not just doctrine. That's part of it, like who God is, the truth of who God is. But rather, Jesus has here this, this intimate idea of knowledge is referring to the, the intimate experience of who God is. Of, of experiencing God's ravishing love for his saints. So the love that the Father has for the Son is now in us because we are in Christ. And because we are united to Christ, the Father delights in us with the same intensity of love that, that the Father has had for the Son for all of eternity. That's now ours. That the radiance of God's glory now shines upon us because we are in Christ, right? That's what it says in verse 26, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So unity and love for one another is not only a reflection of God's triune self, of this glorious self-communion that he has, but church unity is also a foretaste of the saints beholding the glory of that communion in heaven. In other words, the local church is to be a small appetizer of the feast of heaven. The unity of the local church ought to be a sweet communion, right? That as the saints of Christ dwell together, united by the Holy Spirit and dwelling within us, and in a small but very powerful way, the love that we have for one another anticipates the sweet communion and fellowship the saints will have with their God in that last day. That as the saints gaze upon Christ, we will at that day see his glory. And we see, of course, today, partially of that life that's to come. We see through a glass dimly, darkly, Paul says. But yet, one of the ways in this life that we begin to get a glimpse of the glory of Christ, of heaven, is through the fellowship of heaven's citizens on earth. That is, the church gathers to raise its voice collectively in singing to Jesus, we begin to whet our appetite for the great assembly of the saints who will gather before the throne of God in joyous harmony. That when a member is, of the body is ridden by disease and frailty and they experience the provision and tenderness of the love of the church, we experience the love of Christ himself through one another. That in the taking of the Lord's Supper together as one body, the church looks forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb when we will gather with our Savior at the end of the age. That whenever the church gathers to eat, to pray, to laugh, to weep, to rejoice, the sweetness of that intimate love for one another points us towards the communion that we will enjoy with our Savior when we see him face to face in heaven. That the community of the church ought, it ought, it doesn't always do this, but it ought, right? To point forward in anticipation to the beautiful communion that we will have with God in Christ. May God make us united as Redemption Church. And may we see, right, that true unity originates from God's own unity. That unity is grounded in the very word of God. 
And that unity is expressed in our confession. And that confession is expressed in love to God and love to one another. And that love continues to grow and expand. And as the church grows and expands and unity and love over the years, we anticipate the great and glorious day, right? That the saints will behold their God and enjoy the sweetness of union and communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we are blown away that by Christ and in Christ, you now make us participants, that you invite us into the dance of love between yourself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And Father, that as we're united to Christ, we can experience the sweet fellowship and communion and the unity that comes from being united to Christ. Father, we pray that as Redemption Church, we would be united upon a confession of faith or that we would be able to stand upon your word and your word alone. And Lord, that would be the boundaries. That would be the founding stone upon Christ, the cornerstone and the teaching of the apostles and prophets. Lord, that this would be what unites us. But Father, that as we are united in doctrine, that that unity of mind would begin to express itself in a unity of love for one another as we care for one another and, and love one another. And Father, we pray that by your grace, that love that has already begun these last few weeks would continue to grow and be perfected and expand, including more people as they come to know Christ. And Lord, that Redemption Church would be a sweet appetizer of heaven on earth. Father, that as your spirit dwells within us, that the sweetness of love and unity we share would accurately Describe to the world who you are, that it would clearly express the love that you have for the world through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, that we would model it and that it would be replicated through our ministry. Father, we pray that you would make us one. Jesus, we thank you for praying for us. And Father, we pray for your help that you would make us one. Spirit, work in us and through us in such a way that the unity and fellowship and the sweetness of love that we pray will be characteristic of this body could only be explained by your grace and your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.